In this episode, I talk with Lama Paldin, author and Lama in both the Shangpa and Karmakagyu lineages of Tibetan Buddhism. We learn about Lama Paldin's childhood memories of past incarnations and how a spontaneous experience of Jesus healed her of her trauma. We hear stories of powerful personal encounters with some of the 20th century's most renowned masters, including Kalu Rinpoche, Dilgo Kense Rinpoche, and the 16th Karmapa. We also discuss the details of Lama Paldin's three-year retreat taken under the guidance of her guru Kalu Rinpoche and explore dire warnings from Tibetan masters about the future of humanity and what we can do to help. So without further ado, Lama Paldin. Lama Paldin, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. You're welcome. Great to meet you and great to be here with you. So usually I like to start these interviews asking about someone's early life. What initially uh, led to an interest in, in your case, many different spiritual traditions and practices. And in your book, Love on Every Breath, you write, throughout my life, I've been drawn to explore what seems more significant than the ordinary preoccupations of daily life. From the time I was a small child, I've had mystical experiences that informed my life. This, along with the suffering of my habitual patterns, fueled my dedication to spiritual practice. So I'm curious, can you talk about these uh, childhood mystical experiences and their subsequent impact on your life. Yeah, I'll talk about a dream I had when I was three that was very, very profound. It was, I've never forgotten it. And it was one of those dreams that doesn't really feel like a dream. It feels like a real experience. You know, sometimes I think there's like two kinds of dreams, dreams that really feel like a real thing, something really happened, a real experience. It's not just a dream. So it was like that. And at that point in my life, I was only three, but I I wasn't really uh, feeling like I was happy in my life. And I, I didn't feel a good feeling about really being in America. Of course, I didn't think of it as America in that sense. But I remember kind of looking out with my inner eye out onto everybody. And I'm not really talking my family, but out into the bigger culture of people and just seeing so much suffering going on. And the life that was going on, my parents were actually extremely loving, quite wonderful parents with their, you know, usual neurosis, but they were very loving and wonderful and supportive. But I don't know, somehow I was not really wanting to be here fully. And uh, my mother told me later I wouldn't eat, that I just, she took me to the doctor, I was so skinny, I really wasn't eating. And I just, I don't know, I was not liking being there. So that one night I had a dream and two men that were Arab, and I knew they were Arab, I don't know how, but I knew they were. They came and visited me on a flying carpet and they took me on a ride on this flying carpet with them. And I knew that they were spiritual uncles. And how I knew all this, I don't know, but this is what I felt. And they asked me, they said, do you remember why you came to this life? And it triggered something that wasn't a fully conscious thought, but it triggered some kind of memory like, oh, yeah, 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 this was a plan, you know, something. And 
they said they could tell that I was not very happy. I think I was kind of depressed or something. And they said not to worry that when you're in your late teens, you will start meeting your spiritual friends that you knew from before. And in your 20s, you will meet your, I don't remember the exact words, but your spiritual teacher. And this was really reassuring for some reason to me, like their energy and the fact that I knew them from before, like I knew I'd lived in other lives when I was three, and I had some memories of that. And so their energy was very reassuring. And so then they brought me back home and um, back to my house and I, you know, woke up the next morning and I always woke up really early way before everybody else. And I remember thinking, okay, I'm going to be here. I'm going to eat food, you know, and it was like, I went to the kitchen and I got something to eat and I was like, okay, I'll be here. So that was very profound because it was extremely encouraging and it was also like I knew I'd been in other lifetimes and knew other people and had different experiences. And so that was, it was very reassuring and it did actually happen like that. In my late teens, I started meeting my spiritual friends and I did meet my guru in my 20s. That's fascinating. You mentioned there having memories or knowing of other lives. Can you describe a bit about that knowing or those memories? Well, I just, first of all, like at three, I just knew I had been in, you know, again, I don't know how I languaged it in my own head, but other places, other countries that were completely different. And I knew these two men came from some Arab country. How I knew that, I have no idea. Um, and I, you know, I didn't know which country, but like somewhere like I, and in the Middle East, I thought, and I somehow had a picture of that in my head. And then I also uh, had a very strong connection when I was three, like with China. And I didn't have any like really clear memories of different lives, just various different places that I had lived. Later when I was like in sixth grade, I had a very strong feeling that I'd, um, lived in um, as an Inca in Peru, you know, so just different things like that, just this sort of knowing that I'd been in different places in different lifetimes. Later, when I was much older, after three-year retreat, more details started emerging in about certain particular lifetimes. But at that point, it was just sort of a knowing. And there was a really deep sense of wanting to connect with something i talked about that in the book that was yeah that you that you brought up that was that was deeper than what was going on in the daily life there you know that was more real somehow like i wanted to get to something that felt real later after your three-year retreat you mentioned there you you had clearer details about your other life experiences is that due to specific techniques of past life recall that you were taught in the three-year retreat? Or is that a consequence, a sort of passive consequence of all the deep meditative work that you've done on that three-year retreat? 
I think it's the latter. There were no techniques taught to us to do that. It's not part of the tradition to uh, attempt to find that out. But what I found, uh, particularly, I think, with deep Vajrayana, Tibetan Buddhist practice, but I think it, this is uh, undoubtedly true if you practice deeply in any spiritual tradition that is really authentic, that as you clear your karmic obscurations as your mind gets more clear and still and open and um, through the practice. I think it's natural for all of us to, in some sense, be able to see things that seen, but you know, it's not where we're focusing, and also we have a lot in the way of that. So as we do more spiritual practice, the things get cleared out. And I just think, like you said, it's a natural consequence. But I also think that, you know, it's individual too. Like some of us are better at sports or music or math or, you know, I think it was something about me and certain people that were just sort of wired that way that, we have that tendency to be able to see things like that and feel things like that. And I think, you know, we all have different kinds of strengths and talents and that kind of thing. The two spiritual uncles asked you if you remembered why you had come into this life. Why did you come into this life? Well, what I remembered later at the time, I just remembered, oh, yeah, I agreed to come here and I didn't really remember any details. Later, I remembered that I had actually volunteered to come and be try to be of benefit to humanity, to sentient beings here, to human beings here. And there's that. And in this life, my teacher asked me uh, or kind of told me that humanity, as we know, uh, is going to be going through very difficult times coming up. And he said he wanted me to incarnate the next two to three lifetimes, me and some of his other students, in order to help people through the rough times that are coming. When you say that you volunteered to come into this life at this time, do you mean, uh, were, was that from another planet, another dimension, or the, this this planet, but in a past time? Uh, do you have any sense of the setting for that volunteering? Yes, it was in between last life and this life, and it was in a different dimension, and it was not on this earth. You know, I don't know where it was, but it was a different kind of place. And I was with my teachers when it happened. And I always think my motto is... Um, Fools walk in where angels fear to tread. But I, I somehow have this very impetuous nature, like, oh, I'll do that. I'll go, you know. And then I get in this life and it's like, oh, my gosh, this is challenging, really challenging, which I think is what happened to me at three. All of a sudden, I'm like, whoa, where am I? What is this place? You know, that's so fascinating. And in your book, Love and Every Breath, you also write about an experience you had at seven years old that had a very different tone but was extremely impactful on you nonetheless. And you write, As a child, I had an experience of Jesus' love that changed my life. I tell you this story for two reasons. The first is to illustrate the universal nature of the love on every breath meditation, which is a meditation you explain in the book, and show how a similar spiritual practice, but in a Christian context, spontaneously arose in me as a child. 
The second is to illustrate the purifying and healing power of this kind of practice. And can you tell that story and also explain that spontaneous practice that came to you? Yes. So I was um, with my best friend who lived across the street from me. And we happened to be in her brother's room, who was quite a bit older than us. He was 15 and we were seven. And all of a sudden, he told us to pull down our pants and he put his hand on my vulva. And it just happened really, really quickly. And I was, I just felt horrified. And I pulled up my pants and ran out of there and ran home as fast as I could. And after that, I felt somehow sullied, like I felt like I could still feel energetically his hand on me and it didn't feel good. It felt, it just felt dirty or wrong or sullied somehow. I just, I didn't feel good in myself after that at all. And so that went on a little bit. I don't remember how long. And so then I, I got the idea to call upon Jesus and I was raised in a Episcopalian family and I was quite devout as a child and so I called upon Jesus and to come stand next to my bed and every night before I go to sleep when I was in my bed and alone I would call upon him and ask him to heal me and I I imagined in that or I saw in that that from his hand a stream of liquid white nectar like white light a stream of it like a a river flowed from his hand down into my head and then through my whole body and it felt very soothing and it it felt healing it felt I didn't you know of course really have this word at the time but it felt very purifying energetically so that was like the felt experience and soothing and healing and So I did that every night for a long time. Uh, It seemed like I did it for about a year every night, but I don't really know. But when I was seven, that's what I thought, that I did it for close to a year. And then all of a sudden, uh, and I never told anyone about this. I never told anyone about any of these experiences until I was actually in my 30s or 40s or beyond. Actually, this experience, I never told anyone until just like three years ago. And because somehow as a child, I just didn't feel like people would understand. So anyway, after doing that for a long time, every night, I felt completely back to myself, whole and purified and clean and just back to myself in a good way. So I felt like, okay, well, this is complete. So I thanked Jesus for coming and for being with me. And then that was it. And then it was completely felt, I never felt that bad feeling again. I was just completely felt okay after that. So I felt that it was was really um, the power of my opening to him and his love and his, you know, pure being his presence, you know, that was healing for me. We could say psychologically that, you know, I mean, I don't believe he came or I don't believe he didn't come. I don't really think that's the point, but I felt that he was there. I think that's the point. And that my feeling that he was there allowed an opening for that healing to happen. 
I see. And so the imagery associated with that, Jesus being there and the, the stream coming from his hand of white light into your head, was that that was imagery that was somewhat in your inner visual space, or your mind's eye, so to say, rather than seeing an actual, if you want, manifestation of Jesus in the room with you? Or uh, is that not the right way to think of it? I think um, I think it's more like what you're describing, yes. Not like I was seeing a full-on person. Like, I didn't really make that distinction between those two in my mind at that point, but it, it's like you were describing. I think it was more like in my mind's eye which is exactly how we do those things in meditation practice. You know, as adults, maybe we distinguish, was was he really there? Did you really see him like a real person or was he in your mind's eye? And of course, those are two different things. But in my childhood brain or experience, I didn't think of that. That wasn't an issue. It wasn't a question. In my childhood mind, I called on him. I I saw and felt his presence, and he gave me healing. So that's in my child mind how it was, you know. And I didn't really think about it. I didn't think, is this real? Is this not real? I just took it, like, at face value. At that time, that was a spontaneous uh, practice or a spontaneous procedure that you underwent. Uh, Now, with the hindsight of your yogic training in the areas of tantric meditation, the subtle body and so on. How would you analyze the mechanics of what actually was going on there? Yeah, good, interesting question. I really think that, um, I think two things. I think children have often when they're hurt or confused or something has happened that bothers them, you know, it's not and that unusual to have experiences of angels or other kinds of beings that they reach out to for help. So I think that a lot of children have that kind of experience, especially, you know, I used to work as a psychotherapist and I've heard people that were abused as children and have had experiences of like an angel or somebody coming in helping them. So I think That's one thing. There's some sort of natural process like that that happens. And I also think that why I thought to do that and why I did that as a daily practice was probably because I had trained in Tibetan Buddhism in my previous life. And one of my teachers told me I had trained as a yogi quite extensively in the life just before this one in Tibet. And I think that you know, because of that, doing a lot of spiritual practice in my last lifetime where we did do visualizations and healings and we did meditate on things like receiving light and healing, I think that that was probably somewhere deep in my mind stream and it surfaced at that point. What is it, do you think, about uh, a practice like that, whether it's intuitive the drawn up from somewhere in your mind stream or it's something that you're taught in in a training such as the trainings you later underwent what do you think it is about such a visualization that has an effect on trauma stored in the body because it sounds to me and maybe i'm mis- misinterpreting it sounds to me like there was some trauma that had been stuck there as a consequence of this of this encounter with this 15 year old boy and that somehow this meditation with jesus in the light flushed it out 
in, in some sort of sense, or, or released it to some degree. Is there a, so if you want, yogic or mechanical explanation as to, as to why that is? Or is it simply a way for the body to uh, narrate or interpret its natural trauma release faculties? You know, I haven't really thought about that, and I haven't been taught anything really specifically about what you're asking. But in Tantric Buddhist practice, many, many times we do different variations on this kind of practice. Like, for example, receiving light in our forehead center, in our throat center, so and in our heart center, which in Buddhism, the forehead represents the body, this represents speech, and the heart center represents our mind. And that's a very common practice where we receive light from our guru, like, like transmission is light into our body. And that's there's that transmission of awakened mind. And I think that in the... I, I haven't really articulated this before, just trying to put words to something while you're asking. In the trauma will release and let go and be healed in the face of awakened energy, in the face of love, of unconditional love. And I think that, you know, it takes time to penetrate, just like in the story I told, I did that for many months. So it's not like a fasting necessarily. I mean, sometimes people report spontaneous instant healings, you know, from various things. And certainly in the Gospels, there are stories about that and from other traditions as well. But in my case, and I think in a lot of cases, the trauma lets go gradually and that feeling of there's something wrong with me or something bad or something unhealthy, you know, unwholesome, it lets go gradually in the face of pure being, of pure love. So that's as best as I can really talk about it. You know, that was an energetic physical experience I had with that boy. And so to repair it with a different energetic experience that wasn't really physical, but it was definitely very powerful energetically and emotionally. And I can feel it in my, you know, that way you can sense on a subtle level, I could feel it in my physical body. Just like, say we walk into a room and we didn't know, but there's somebody there that we know really hates us. And even like maybe before we even know they're in the room, we might feel some energy. Like we can feel energy from people if they're really angry at us or they really don't like us. It, it's a certain kind of energy we can feel. So in reverse is true also. If there's an awakened energy or somebody who's, you know, like pure being or how a, a divine being, whatever we want to call it, then their love, their healing energy is definitely can be a felt presence if we open to that. In the traditions you've studied, speaking of that negative energy that one can feel from, say, someone who has ill intent towards us or something like that, or even somebody maybe who's in a very foul mood in the vicinity can, I think, also impact, you know, get you down in a way. How is that approached in the traditions in which you've studied? Is it a sort of self-defense 
kind of approach? Or is it an approach of metabolizing? Or is it some other kind of approach? I'm aware that in certain traditions, for instance, in Chinese traditions, there is a combative implication to what you said in, in, for instance, the internal martial arts. These things are seen as part of the array of tools available to you in combat. That's a fighting system, of course. How is that situation, someone's very bad negative energy, say, towards you, or being in a very terrible, horrible situation, like, I don't know, prison, perhaps. How is that uh, dealt with in the traditions in which you studied? Well... Definitely in Vajrayana and Tibetan Buddhism, and I think in Christianity, uh, you focus on compassion for that person. So you focus on understanding that that person is really suffering, and they're confused, and so they're putting out their, their suffering, they're putting out their negative energy of anger or hatred or jealousy or whatever it is toward other people. Or maybe they're not specifically putting it out, but they're just in suffering and you can feel that and pick it up. So the compassion is really the way it's dealt with. And, you know, like the love on every breath is a great example of actually breathing in that suffering and allowing it to be transformed transformed in our own heart and sent back out as love, you know, with the help of the awakened presence in our hearts. And so in general, there isn't a combative or a protective approach. It's more approach based on compassion. Also, certainly, uh, you know, I think all spiritual traditions too uh, teaches to work skillfully with people, you know, so that we try to be as skillful as possible in working with people so that they don't hurt us or themselves or somebody else, you know. But the basis is really compassion and understanding. So from there, you go on to study quite a diverse range of traditions before you eventually encounter the man who was to become your guru later, Kalu Rinpoche. You studied and meditated for some time with the Zen master, Bill Kwong, and you've been sitting Zazen, which is Zen meditation at home every day for several years, along with doing Hatha yoga, mantra and prayer practice. You studied Sufism. You studied the Old Testament with a rabbi. You studied early Christianity and the Christian mystical tradition. And you write about these. All these traditions were for me a seamless fabric of incredible color, beauty, and texture. All this prior study and practice prepared me to meet and train with Kalu Rinpoche. And I'm curious, once again, having gone through the tantric Tibetan training that you've gone through, for instance, and, and your various experiences, how you see the figure of Jesus today. Of course, as a child, he was in the Christian context that you've been raised in. And I'm wondering if you have a different view of him today. Uh, I don't think it's changed really. Uh, I don't know, like, for me, you know, all these things people talk about, like, he's the son of God, or whatever, like, that has never been here nor there for me, really. I, I, I don't know, it just, that doesn't really ring anything one way or the other for me. I have always thought of him as, um, it's so hard to put into words, but, you know, as a pure now I would say as an awakened being, uh, wherever he is in that spectrum, which is a huge spectrum. And, you know, I think he's 
very highly developed, obviously, and and um, attained a very high level of realization. That's what I, how I would look at it now. Um, as a child, you know, I think I was quite a mystic rather than a philosopher or a theologian. I didn't think like is it this or is it that? Is he really the son of God or what is he really? Or, you know, I didn't really think like that. I just um, felt like here was a great being who um, taught many great things. And um, I certainly felt the blessing of his presence you know, as well as the whole Trinity in church and through taking communion and all of that, felt a lot of blessing coming. And so I didn't second guess it or really analyze it intellectually. It's funny because, I mean, I was very smart in school, but I didn't, I just, in my inner mystical way of being with things, I just didn't get all conceptual about it at all. So it hasn't really changed much except maybe the language I would put it in nowadays is somewhat different after Buddhist training, you know, like saying he's an awakened being that would not have been the language I would have used as a child, you know? And would you say that that awakening, I mean, we're speculating now and, you know, feel free to say, I don't, I know I don't really have anything to say about that. And that's perfectly fine answer. But when you say awakening, would you imagine that to be, something like the stream enter or arhat or perhaps something like a bodhisattva somewhere on the boomies um, or a mahasiddha perhaps if you were to kind of look with the lens of your later training does anything resonate in that sense yeah i think in general uh people in tibetan buddhism like the tibetans themselves see jesus as a very great bodhisattva that's how they look at it, and I, I look at it in the same way. I wouldn't presume to to uh, say what level he's on. I think that being able to see that is way beyond where my development is, so I would not presume to say I know what level he's on, but I would say he's a very great bodhisattva, a great being. And I think uh, Christ consciousness is also another really interesting phenomena, so to speak. I think somehow maybe Jesus opened up, just like Buddha opened up a huge field of awakening for many beings. I think Jesus opened up a whole spiritual field through his practice and realization that, you know, we call Christ consciousness, that you know, people are able to access through their own spiritual practice. So it, 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 that, it takes a very great being to be able to do things like that, to open up whole new or whole fields of consciousness for people. And in Buddhism, it's said that the next such person is this particular person called Maitreya, the, the Buddha-in-waiting. Would you consider that to be a similar sort of being? Um, maybe so. Yeah, maybe so. You know, there's many very highly realized beings alive on our planet today. Not maybe many, but there are there are from different traditions. And uh, in the Tibetan tradition, when they say that the next Buddha will be coming is Maitreya, that's considered a level of 
spiritual realization and attainment that is incredibly powerful for all of the world, for all of humanity, for all the animal species, for all the nature, for everything. When somebody awakens to the point um, of what, you know, is considered a Buddha, that it's a very, very powerful occurrence for all the beings. And in fact, everybody's karma has to support that. The energies of the whole planet, of the people, of the animals, of the nature, everything also um, need to be in a certain way to support that happening as well. And that's how it's talked about in the tradition, which uh, makes sense to me. So, you know, and, you know, I think a lot of people nowadays with what we're facing as humans and what the human race is facing, a lot of people are feeling that a lot of spiritual beings are looking over us, helping us, you know, whatever they can. And my teachers, the Tibetans, really, really emphasize that the awakened beings are constantly reaching out to us and want to benefit us. But if we don't open to them and request their help, nothing can happen. And they, again and again, use this metaphor of like the Buddha's reaching out like a hook. And we need to reach up and grab that. So in practical sense, that means we need to call upon the awakened beings, you know, whoever we feel connection with to help us and open ourselves to receive that um, benefit in whatever way it is from beings that are more evolved than we are, that do have love for us and want to be able to help us during this hard time, you know, and are always there, whether it's hard times or not. In terms of what comes next, you meet Kalu Rinpoche, your guru. I'll read from your book here your description of him. Up front on the platform stage was a wizened teacher in maroon robes. As I sat and gazed at him, not thinking anything in particular, suddenly in the depths of my heart I knew this man was the teacher I'd been longing for. Then, out of the blue, a lot of mucus started coming out of me. Water started dripping from my eyes, I started coughing, and I had to blow my nose repeatedly. This lasted for about five minutes. It felt like a lot of old stuff in the form of mucus was leaving me. I was stepping into a new realm of shining light, playfulness, joy, and truth. It felt authentic, and I was speechless. After a few minutes, I thought to myself, well, I guess whatever religion he is, is fine for me. And that's the first meeting uh, that you had with Kali Rinpoche. You sort of draw, dragged along to an evening talk, with rather not particularly uh, looking for anything by the sounds of it. Could you explain a bit about what I read there, that first meeting with Kali Rinpoche, and how things unfolded after that? Well, uh, yeah, it was kind of a very graphic description, but um, I don't know. I think that I think coming in contact with him, uh, and obviously we have a you know I have a very strong karmic connection with him because I feel uh, I subsequently later felt you know many many times like I had studied with him in other lifetimes you know which was why I recognized him oh there's my teacher. And I wasn't a Buddhist or anything at that point. And I just leapt into being his student. I think sometimes it's almost like when the light and the love 
is shining so strong. It's like all of a sudden I think that's why my nose started running. I started coughing. I had to blow my nose, you know, and tears were coming. It was like they weren't really tears. It was just my body was expelling kind of what was in the way in the moment of all this light coming in and touching me. And so that's how I understood that. And it was the beginning of a remarkable journey for which I'm extremely grateful that I was able to be with him for 12 years. I wasn't with him the whole time. I was in three-year retreat part of the time. I didn't see him during for like four years. But I was um, I was able to spend a lot of time in person with him, mainly in his monastery in Darjeeling and a few other places around the world. And then I was able to study with many of the other great masters of that time. So I feel incredibly grateful. And it, it really was like receiving just the most amazing nectar in their presence. First of all, the felt presence of Kalarimche and my other teachers, just this amazing energy field that was so nourishing just for me to be in their presence. We actually used to joke about it because Kalarimche's monastery was in this a village a little ways in Darjeeling district, a little ways away from the main town. And it's incredibly foggy. The weather there is just horrible. It's like, it's so foggy that a lot of times, a lot of months of the year, if you hang your clothes to dry in your room, they don't dry for 10 days. There's so much fog. And the food is terrible. I mean, it was a refugee monastery. The food, both in the monastery and in the town, was extremely basic and not very great. I mean, we got by. We had a few things that we liked. But, I mean, all in all, the physical circumstance was not great. And why did all these people show up from all over the world? Because the presence of Kalarimshi and other great lamas, you know, was so magnificent. And it was feeding us on such a profound level. It was like the sun shining. So even though... We'd come from far wealthier country, you know, circumstances that were with much better housing, much better food, much better all those physical things. But we had never felt this kind of incredible nourishment of this incredible presence of their wisdom. So I, I have tremendous gratitude for their generosity, for Kalarimshe's generosity, and for the other lamas as well. And Kalarimshe was really the first Tibetan Lama to literally train Westerners fully and completely in the tradition. And some of the Tibetans did not agree when he started doing that at all. But he thought that, um, you know, he was bent on really giving us everything. In other words, you know, training us in the same way that the Tibetans trained. At that time, many of the Lamas, refugees in India at that time, were giving teachings to Westerners. What was it about Kalu Rinpoche, or what was Kalu Rinpoche covering in addition to what everybody else was willing to teach that was so controversial? It was his putting Westerners in three-year retreat, which was really exposing them and training them in really the, the 
um, teachings, the deepest level of teachings. And by going into three retreat and having that training, that set us up for, you know, even more deeper training and receiving. So basically, he opened the doors to everything, and that's what was controversial. There were, like you said, a lot of teachers, a lot of lamas teaching, but uh, they were not teaching the curriculum of the three-year retreat. Um, some of them, in very rare circumstances, were teaching, you know, one or two of those practices. But to really initiate us into the whole thing and give us that entire training. That was what was controversial. But after he did it, then many other lamas followed. And the other part that was controversial was he trained women and men completely equally. And when they were done with their three-year retreat, he recognized them equally. And he felt that... um, you know, if they completed their retreat and um, did, you know, well in that, I don't know how, you know, that is assessed or whatever, but he made men and women equally lamas. And so that was also uh, controversial in the beginning. Was everyone who went through that three-year retreat that you began in 1982, was everyone who finished that recognized as the Lama? In other words, is simply the completion of the three-year retreat, having stuck it out, say, sufficient qualification? Or were, was there an additional level of scrutiny applied to that recognition? I think it's it's really varied in different circumstances. In the very first retreat in the West, and of course, these were incredibly sincere, dedicated people, and so Kala Rinpoche did, at the end of that first retreat, make everybody a llama or say that everybody was a llama. Later, that didn't necessarily happen because, for one, um, he wasn't necessarily around and didn't necessarily see all the people that graduated. And people ended up training under some of his center llamas. And so that was handled differently. And then in different lineages, when they went on to start training people in three retreats, it was handled very differently by different teachers. And uh, after that first retreat, Kala Rinpoche wasn't necessarily yet in contact with the graduates. So it didn't happen like that again in other ways. And, And everybody handled it differently. My situation, I was a personal student of his, which was a little different than some people. And, you know, I did have contact with him after retreat. It wasn't for uh, almost a year. Yeah, it was after I came out of retreat that I saw him again. But at that point, I saw him and then he authorized me as a Lama. What do you think he was looking for when he authorized you like that? What criteria would you do you imagine he was looking for perhaps fluency in the techniques or some degree of realization or attainment through the methods? Yeah, I really have no no idea. Um, Yeah, I really have no idea. You can't really guess on what people like him are thinking. Um, I think he thought that I probably, well, for one thing, I think he knew me for many lifetimes and he knew what kind of person I am. 
And I think he thought I could benefit beans. And a llama is a llama in order to benefit beans. That's why you're given that title, basically. It, it's, it's a title of a teacher to help beans. And I think he thought that, that um, he, he was extremely happy when I went into the three-year retreat. And I think, you know, he was very happy afterward. And I think it was more my really deep sincerity than anything else that he felt. You know, that's what I felt from him personally. I'd love to ask you a bit more about that three-year retreat. But before I do, in your book, you tell lots of stories. Um, almost every chapter has a story of an encounter with some of these great teachers that you studied with during your time in India. Is there a story about Kala Rinpoche, memories of your relationship with him, that would perhaps convey a bit of the sense of, of what he was like to be around? Oh, gosh. Well, two things pop to mind. I mean, it's really very hard to answer that but I remember one time I was in his house we used to go to his house to wait for teachings and we would you know the teaching was like it was supposed to be at two that didn't mean it was going to happen it would happen at two or four or whenever it was going to happen definitely time is a different uh, relationship over there at least in those days now things are more westernized but so I was over in his house because we were going to be having a teaching at some point that afternoon. So in one of the side rooms where nobody was, there was a small room, and I decided I'd just do some yoga. And I remember I was in a shoulder stand. And um, in that tradition, probably you know, in some of the other traditions as well, when a teacher comes in, you immediately stand up or, you know, something like that. So I remember being in a shoulder stand, I noticed Rinpoche came in and I immediately went to like get out of that and like bow down, you know, make a bow to him or some stand up and make a bow or namaste. And he just, with his hands, because I didn't speak Tibetan, he didn't speak English, he just kind of went like, you know, that hand gesture, like, no, 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 I'll just, Stay as you are, like, don't get up, don't do anything. And it was just, you know, just spontaneous, like, no, you know, just because I walked in the room, don't get out of your yoga pose, you know, and it was because it's such an honorific culture for people like that, you know, and it was just his sweetness that, like, uh, I don't know, like, you know, a true teacher that people have a lot of honor and respect and customs for, you know, in that culture, it's, they don't care because their ego is not involved. So he's not caring that people are standing up or bowing down or whatever, you know, and uh, it's more like, no, no, just carry on, you know, with what you're doing. And another story that really nice, like, Bingo Kinsey Rinpoche in the Nyingma lineage was another very great lama, you know, approximately the same age as Kala Rinpoche during the same time period. And they were great friends. Rinpoche had, you know, many great uh, yogi friends from various lineages. And one day we were having this teaching with Kala Rinpoche and 
we were sitting in his room and he was giving a teaching and and all of a sudden a little monk, you know, a little like six-year-old monk or something ran up to Rinpoche and whispered in his ear, but we could hear, oh, Dingo Kinsey's here. And so immediately as when Rinpoche heard that, Dingo Kinsey, Rinpoche was there, he just, and he was like in his late 70s or, you know, and people thought he was frail, but he actually wasn't frail, really. He was, you know, quite a great yogi. He leapt straight up off the cushion he was sitting on. He just leapt straight up in the air and ran out of the room. And that was it. It's not like, oh, okay, that's enough teaching for today. You go can see where she is here. Or, you know, like, oh, my really great friend is here, you know. This is the end of the teaching. Nothing. You know, it's just like he left up off the thing and just ran out of the room, you know. And, you know, um, in the West, students get so uptight about everything. You know, like, what do you mean you're ending the teaching? It wasn't done yet. Or isn't it supposed to go to 4.30? Or isn't it supposed to start at 2? Or, you know, it's just everything is so uptight all the time. And, you know, that's just... To me, that story in that instance was the pure spontaneity of actually studying in the environment where these people are from or have a culture that is their own culture. And it's like, it's so spontaneous. Like, there'd be days when, you know, my son was there with me for, he was actually in the monastery with Kala for a couple of years when he was seven to nine years old. And there was another little boy there that he was great friends with who was French-American, and they would have their toys sometimes in Rimshay's room all over the carpet, you know, like Smurfs were big at that point. I remember they had like Smurf armies and, you know, Legos and whatever. They were all over the floor. And I remember these uptight Western students came into the room one day to have audience and meet Rimshay, and they got so uptight. They were like, a monastery is no place for children's toys. What are these toys doing here in Rinpoche's room? And we just looked at them like, what is your problem? <laughs> you know, what is your problem? Like, the, the Tibetans aren't like that at all. It was completely fine with Rinpoche to have toys in his sitting room where he was receiving people and where he was giving teachings. They did that for months, for years. That was completely fine. You know, I mean... It's like, you know, it's really, I think that's one of the reasons I've taken students to Bhutan and to India and to see the Vajrayana, you know, we, Tibet, it's a little more problematic to see it actually functioning in its its natural way because of the occupation of the Chinese. But in the Indian uh, monasteries or Nepal or Sikkim or Bhutan, you can see it in their the natural culture, and it is not an uptight culture at all, you know. And I think that's that's very good because Westerners tend to have a lot of concepts about spirituality that have nothing to do with reality, and they're just uptight concepts. That's so fantastic. What what are some other uptight concepts or misconceptions that you've encountered? Well, uh, some people think that um, if a teacher tells you they're awakened or enlightened, that that means they really are, and that if and that you should that if you think I don't know. First of all, the whole 
idea of awakening is like in Buddhism, it's it's a path, you know, it's a path, and um, even all these high teachers will not tell you. The Dalai Lama people have heard him say, you know, first of all, if somebody, t- why are they even telling you that? You know, it's like um, it it's really there. There's no reason to tell people that. Um, you know, unless the ego is trying to promote itself. Like in all, all spiritual traditions, humility is a very important value. And actually not just saying it, but actually truly being humble. So that doesn't, that means we don't think we're anything. And if, you know, in the West, people think, uh, yeah, the, the teacher tells you they're awakened, and then everybody believes it. That's it, not the way it works. Real people will never tell you that. Mystics will never tell you that. Real super advanced yogis will never tell you that, or yoginis. So I think that's another strange thing in the West. And people think that, um, yeah, it just they don't understand that it's a, it's it's a spectrum. It's a path that we're on a long path and it's not really about um, getting to some state or place or goal. The path is really about love and it's about actualization and that's an ongoing process. So there's that. And um, the other thing I think this isn't really what you were asking, but I think in the West, so many people we have a tendency to feel really badly about ourselves. And, you know, that's sort of like two, we have a huge narcissism in our culture and we have a huge other side where we feel like we're a terrible person and we're ashamed of ourselves. And I think both of those extremes, um, you know, it just shows in a way it's really sad that our culture has that. It's like really sad that people feel that way. Um, and, you know, one is just the flip side of the other, really. You know, the ego, egomaniac narcissism is really out of insecurity, of not feeling, you know, you're good enough. I mean, we know this psychologically. And um, it's kind of a fixation either way. And so that's, I think, sad. And I think, you know, through meditation, spiritual practice, through yoga, through a lot of different methods, people can begin to feel better about themselves in a real way. And I think that's really, really valuable and important. And that it's not it's not about concepts, the spiritual path. It's really about transformation and it's about getting more and more in touch with our own basic goodness, our own innate purity, our own innate awakened nature. And I guess one of the false concepts is like people look at it as all or nothing, but while we're on the path, we're human beings. It's a long process. Teachers are not going to be perfect. And if they act perfect, it's because they're on an ego trip and they're trying to act perfect because normal people do not, are not perfect. Even normal, realized people. You know, as we go, hopefully the character work is also done and we become better and better people. 
But perfection is not what the spiritual path is about in the sense that people think it is. Like this teacher needs to conform to my idea, my concept of what a spiritual teacher is, how they behave, what they look like, what they do do in their life and people get all these concepts about that and then think that the person's supposed to conform to that but that is just a trap you know for the student and if the teacher falls into that to trying to be that for people then it'd be also as a trap for the teacher it's not reality really so i think we have a lot of ideas in the west what these spiritual teachers or real life beings are supposed to look like or act like or, you know, all of that kind of thing. Now, on the other hand, I do think we need to hold people to moral standards and ethical standards. And I think, but I think that's a basic human thing that we should hold everybody accountable for in our culture, you know. It's not okay for regular people to abuse other people, and it's not okay for spiritual teachers either, you know. So I think, you know, all of that is very important that we have accountability and we have ethics and all of that, and we have repercussions, you know, if people don't um, behave appropriately. But I think it goes much further than that, you know, in a way that becomes unhelpful. And one of the things you mentioned there about Kali Rinpoche is that people often thought he was frail. And if anyone looks at a picture, and I'll probably put a picture of him in the intro, actually, seeing as he was your main guru, you'll see that he's gaunt. In many of the pictures, he looks gaunt, almost skeletal, actually. Uh, the, the most popular pictures of him, I think, do give that impression. But you said that actually he wasn't frail, that he was a great yogi. I'm wondering if you can explain that. We've had uh, on the podcast, uh, we've discussed the six yogas of Naropa and Naguma with people and Sukha City with people like Glenn Mullen and uh, Ian, Ian Baker. And I'm looking forward to discussing those with you shortly when we get to the curriculum of the three-year three retreat. Uh, could you perhaps point to what you mean when you say that Kali Rinpoche was a great yogi and what that would have to do with whether he's frail or not? Yeah, actually, that was kind of misspoken on my part because... Someone can be a great yogi, and they could be very sick or frail. But um, so that wasn't really accurate in that sense. But it's true he was a great yogi, and it's true he wasn't frail. But, for example, friends of mine that traveled with him around Asia, and they went to many temples, and some of the temples were like many, many, many steps, like 80, 100, 200 steps up to the temple. And tired, and he was running up the steps, you know. And this happened again and again and again, they were telling me. And so how things look and how they are are not always the same. But also, great yogis can get sick, and many of them have gotten sick, and everybody has died at some point. So, you know, um, he could have been frail, but he just didn't happen to be. He And he was a great yogi, yeah. Is it the case that in addition to, say, the spiritual or enlightenment-oriented effects of the six yogas, is it the case that they also have some kind of effect on the physical body? They have a very powerful effect on the physical body, the six yogas, so-called six yogas or six dharmas, which uh, advanced yogic practices in the Vajrayana tradition. So they affect very profoundly 
the physical body, the subtle body, which consists of um, what's called uh, Salung and Tigli. Other words, uh, the channels, the energy that moves through the channels and the inherent um, we don't have a translation for Tigli. Bindu is the Sanskrit, but it's like the energy inherent in the in the body on a microscopic level. And then so it affects the physical body, the subtle body and the mind all extremely powerfully. And but, uh, you know, some great yogis are very large and carry a lot of extra weight and some are very thin. So in terms of how the body appears, it can appear in all different kinds of ways with great yogis. What determines whether a yogi becomes the larger type, such as I think maybe the Karmapa could be, the 16th Karmapa could be in that category, or someone like Kaila Rinpoche, who's, who's very slender? Is that just their natural body typology, or is it a different emphasis or leaning within their yogic practice? No, no, I think it's just different people and um, some people like to eat more, you know. I think it's just a natural human thing that some people like to eat more. They put on more weight or maybe there's other physical or genetic factors. I don't think it's something different in the way they practice yoga necessarily. Yeah. And for example, Dingo Kinsey Rinpoche, one of the greatest Sokchen masters of the 20th century, was extremely large. He was not when he was in cave retreat for many years. But, you know, later after many years out of cave retreat, you know, often um, yogis do put on weight, uh, yogis or yoginis. So, yeah, I just think it's a normal human thing that some people do and some people don't. Interesting. And so did you have any personal um, experience or interactions with Dilgo Kensei that you can remember? Uh, yes. Uh, yeah, I met him a few different times. I didn't have any extensive uh, relationship or I wasn't able to have a lot of extensive time with him, but I was fortunate to meet him at different times. I think um, the last time I remember vividly was in Bhutan, in a temple in Bhutan where he spent a lot of time that was founded uh, in the uh, 8th century by Guru Padmasambhava. And Dingo Kinsey hung out there a lot. So it was, um, in fact, there's a statue of him now in that temple. So another great master of the 20th century that you had spent quite a bit of time with was the 16th Karmapa. From your book, Love on Every Breath, you write, over and over, I had a striking experience with his holiness. Every time I walked into his room, his holiness's vast open presence became palpable and my mind would become like a huge blank movie screen. Whatever thought was in my mind, such as what I was going to speak with His Holiness about, I would immediately recognize as insignificant ego activity, and I would drop it. I would just be totally open and present with him the rest of the time. It was a powerful introduction to resting in awareness. And I'm wondering, I'd like you to talk, if you, if you could, about meeting the Karmapa and what kind of man he was, and your experiences with him, but also uh, regarding that particular passage, I'm curious as to the difference between the sort of impact being in the presence of someone like the Karmapa, the 16th Karmapa has, compared to, say, the feeling of being starstruck that one may encounter meeting a celebrity or a personal hero. And I'm also curious as to what degree that presence that he exuded 
was a deliberate maneuver of some sort. For instance, some uh, yogic or meditative process he was undergoing as a teaching, and how much of it was a sort of passive consequence of his, say, attainment or his level of mastery? Well, I think in terms of your last question, I think it's very unlikely that he was trying to do anything because the practice at the level of realization that he was at is utterly natural, to be utterly natural. And he was really beyond the point of doing something, you know, of course he would give teaching once in a while to give teachings or he would give empowerments or transmissions, but in terms of doing something behind the scenes, so to speak, I don't buy that at all. The whole practice of Mahamudra and Dzogchen is utter naturalness, resting in natural mind and just being as one is with what is and the inseparability of the duality of subject object and just resting naturally in that. So uh, uh, I don't, I think that's something maybe much lesser developed beings might try to do, but I think for really highly developed spiritual teachers, it's a much more completely natural process of unfolding. So, my experience of 16th Karmapa was simultaneous, and I've never felt, you know, every great, great realized being has a unique manifestation, which I think is part of the beauty that, and when we awaken, we'll have our own unique, amazing manifestation. There's no one size. It's not like everybody turns into some ottoman or something, you know, Uh into a model spiritual person like we were talking about last time. But the Karmapa, so his unique manifestation that I've never really encountered in anybody else, personally I haven't, was this vast, vast, profound compassion that one felt in his field, simultaneous with really great power and that union of tremendous power and tremendous compassion was really and the the love that he extended to each and every person that came to see him was amazing i mean again many you know high beings are like that they extend love equally to everyone But I was surprised, like, for example, friends of my mother's from California were on a tour. They're not Buddhists. They're not spiritual at all. They, in fact, owned a nursery, a plant nursery in the Bay Area in California. And they happened to visit Sikkim, and they happened to end up visiting Rumtek Monastery, and they happened to meet the Karmapa there, and they had an audience with him and spent quite a few hours talking with him, apparently. This they shared with my mother. And he became very interested that they were gardeners and because he... You know, he liked to do a little gardening, and so he showed them his bonsai, and he showed them all around. And he extended to them the same kind of kindness and presence and love and compassion that he would do with a Dharma student. You know, it didn't matter. It just was to everybody. 
And because I was fortunate to spend a lot of time with him, I saw him in a lot of different situations all over the world with people with that um, came to him for all different kinds of reasons, you know, from very kind of um, important or wealthy people, powerful people to people that were like uh, quite bedraggled and, you know, the whole a range of humans and some people came with really upset mental states, you know, and a lot of suffering or a lot of suffering due to physical illness or various things like that. And even when he himself was dying, his compassion was just amazing that he would extend to people. In fact, the doctors and nurses in the hospital in Illinois where he eventually died said that they knew he must be in extreme pain given the illnesses he had. But whenever they'd ask him how he was, he'd just say, oh, I'm fine. And he'd just completely ask them, every single one of them, how they were doing, what was going on with them. It's just amazing compassion extended to each of them. And so that was really um, the strongest impression and the strongest feeling I had from being around him. And what I described in my book about coming into his presence and just my whole mind became vast and like a vast screen, which I could see my thoughts on it. It was, I think it was just, a spontaneous thing that happened because of his presence, because of his being so kind of um, in a place of realization beyond ego, that my ego activity was just revealed in the face of that. But it wasn't there was nothing. I mean, I, I didn't feel ashamed and he certainly always just treating me with the utmost loving kindness. But I think, yeah, it was a spontaneous manifestation of being around a person like that and just seeing um, my own mind in contrast to this vast um, presence of loving awareness that I experienced with him. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. What is the impact or uh, after effect, if you want, of, of being around that? I mean, I can, I can certainly imagine a sort of peak experience at the time, but to what degree is that, if any, carried on in you personally? I'm really, really glad you asked that, Steve, because this is a really, really important point. And what I experienced in being able to spend a lot of time with His Holiness, the 16th Karmapa, Kalarimshe, and other great masters. And those were the main two, but it happened with some, you know, with my other teachers as well, is that with their capacity to see the pure being, the awakened nature of each and every being, and their incredible love. So, they are mirroring to us our our true nature and they are mirroring that they are seeing it and they are embracing us with loving kindness 
And to me, what happened to me through that was it gave me an avenue to begin to experience my own true nature and my own pure being. I mean, true nature, pure being, Buddha nature, these are all words, you know, for maybe what's in Tibetan um, or uh, Dharmata in Sanskrit, reality as it is, and to really experience that inside oneself, which doesn't negate the fact that I could also see and also do see my own, you know, neurosis or foibles or my own shortcomings or issues that aren't resolved. But it was so powerful in really bringing me to the point where I could and can experience my own Buddha nature. And I think it's the power of being mirrored in that. And that's the greatest gift that I think a teacher can give. And certainly for myself, I also felt like, you know, that was very much um, what I was drawn to do with students is to mirror back to them their own Buddha nature, their own awakened pure being. How do you mirror back as a teacher yourself, someone's Buddha nature or true being in that way? Do you also exude with your students that kind of presence similar to the Karmapa's presence, albeit your own version? Or is there a way of uh, teaching or a way of relating to them that you employ? Uh, I don't think I exude anything even in the um, ballpark of the Karmapa, but I think I do have a capacity to see people's true nature, to see their pure being on an individual level as well as on a universal level. And so by seeing that and feeling that and being aware of that and being in touch with that in myself and with them and being in touch with their pure being, it's a natural thing. It just naturally then is mirrored to them because I'm in relationship with them, feeling that in them. And I am literally um, responding to that. That's who I'm speaking to. Now, also, of course, as human beings and whether one's a spiritual teacher or not, sometimes we get hit in the head or whatever with our own shortcomings or somebody else's. So, you know, again, like I was saying, this doesn't preclude that I would I see my own shadow side, so to speak, and with others that I can see that as well at times. You know, um, for me personally, it's been easier in some ways in many ways, to see the pure being of people rather than their shadow side. And I've actually had to train myself to open to that, to be willing to see it, because it's often quite painful for me to see that with others. It's funny, because I've always seen it in myself, but to see it with others uh, is painful for me. So, you know, I've I've had to work through that to be willing to see both. And really what I'm talking about is being able to see the ultimate and relative truth simultaneously in myself and with with everybody and with everything in the totality of what is. I suppose without the ability to see the shadow side, 
of a person. Maybe one might, in a sense, be vulnerable to the negative actions of that side. You know, I think if we don't, if we're not able to balance, like, seeing the relative truth and the, and the absolute truth within ourselves and others, it can hit us over the head, like I said sometimes, you know, and it's it's really important, you know, otherwise we're kind of like in a Pollyanna realm or something, you know, and this is the kind of clarity that's talked about when people talk about the qualities of a Buddha, that the Buddha can see everything in phenomena, everybody's karma for many, many lifetimes backward and forward, you know, as well as, of course, his own, but at the same time, sees the ultimate purity of everything that is and of each and every sentient being. So in the awakening process, that's part of what we're working on is being able to see both with, and that's out of the clarity that comes through our spiritual practice. And some of us are more leaning toward one side or the other. And, you know, for all of us, it needs to, the clarity needs to come to see both of those. One of the more painful aspects of a person can be somebody, say, with personality disorders. And people with personality disorders do often seek out spiritual relief and spiritual uh, counsel and spiritual teachers and so on. I wonder, seeing as you mentioned there that Kamapa was dealing with sometimes people with very disturbed mental states, I wonder if you've ever encountered students with severe personality disorders of some sort. And if so, how you've navigated that notoriously treacherous water. Well, I, I think every teacher does come in contact with that at some point with people, whether it's severe or mild or whatever, with, you know, people that have personality disorders. Uh, um, when I was training as a psychotherapist, I worked in an agency in Palo Alto, and I worked with people that uh, had psychotic disorders, depressive disorders, and personality disorders. I mean, had one of those to be in our clinic. So I learned a little bit, you know, from being in that for four years and working with people. And But I think sometimes, or for many spiritual teachers, it's hard because we do tend to see the good in people. And... And also, people tend to be on their best behavior with their spiritual teacher until maybe they aren't. And so I don't think I've always been really skillful with that. Um, I think it's challenging for spiritual teachers to be skillful with that. And sometimes um, people are wanting what they're actually wanting from the spiritual teacher is a mommy and daddy and to be reparented and they want to repair they they want to feel of course healed and whole and unconsciously they're looking to be reparented and that's not the role of a spiritual teacher and there's it's also not the role of a spiritual teacher to be a therapist so I think um, it's really important that we all, you know, seek therapy for the parts of us that or that need that, you know, like, and that spiritual teachers, like, you know, I've tried to encourage people 
that work with me to do therapy when they feel that it's needed, not the whole time, but to do it as needed or to do some other kind of psychological work like um, the Diamond Heart work from the Ridwan School, something to really work with their own psychological state. And I've certainly done a lot of psychological work myself for myself. And I think this is very helpful because it's not our pure being that is blocking our awakening. It's our psychological issues that block our awakening. So it's and it's simply a case of people with personality disorders, their psychological issues are a little more complex. So, you know, they um, can really benefit through sincerely working with that in therapy and then the spiritual path can actually uh, be of great benefit. But it's hard for the spiritual path to really be of benefit if they don't also do the psychological work. I think for all of us, if we don't do the psychological work that's needed, it's hard for the spiritual path to really, really take hold and to really give us, you know, the benefit that it can. One more anecdote of yours of the 16th Karmapa. And then I'd like to explore the the time you were in three-year retreat. So, you write here in 1978 that you had an extraordinary encounter with the another one, another extraordinary encounter with the 16th Karmapa at his monastery in Sikkim. And you write, as I sat in front of Karmapa on the floor, he reached out and put his hand palm down on top of my head on my crown chakra. Then he started chanting and chanting. I couldn't believe it. It seemed like 20 minutes. Energy poured into my crown chakra and down what I later learned was my central channel. I was shy at that age and thought, Oh my gosh, my central channel, the whole inside core of my body became large, completely empty and filled with his blessing. My central channel opened up to include the whole world. It was a powerful experience, the feeling of openness and inseparability with the whole planet and beyond. My subtle body was never the same after that. And I'm wondering in what way was your subtle body not the same after that? Well, I think, and I experienced this also with color and pache. There's something that happens um, when a great being touches the crown of your head and transmits because into the crown chakra. And then, like I said, at that point, I didn't know about all the subtle body or whatever, but I just felt the whole experience of this tremendous blessing. And I think what happened was that in that blessing, he was giving me that he actually opened up the central channel and the other channels that come off the central channel. And he not only opened it up, but he filled it with blessing, with awakened energy and because of that there was a um, what we say in in yogic terms is that the channels become unkinked they straighten out they open up and the energy or the prana the prana is the sanskrit word flows through the entire subtle body in a much better way so normally because of our psychological issues and karmic obscurations, the subtle body and the channels are slightly obscured or twisted or not so straight or blocked in certain places. And so that kind of blessing 
it's really like um, you know like a cleansing waterfall or something and you know then of course we still have to do the work to uh, work with the material that's kicked up in that kind of situation you know because when we go through a transformative process a lot of times what issues that we're blocking, for example, certain parts of the channels or something, they come up to the forefront and we can feel them psychologically. So we have to learn to really be present to that and face them and have compassion and let them go and not reenact them as well. Did that happen to you after that encounter with the Kamapa? Were you then, in a certain sense, coming face to face with some unusual material in the aftermath of that? Not directly in that particular instance. It was actually he was saying goodbye to me and I was leaving to go back to the States after the first time I was in India and met him. And so then I was traveling home. And I think at that point, I was so filled with the blessing from him and Kalarimche and the other great beings I'd met that it was later that um, when I, it was really when I went into three-year retreat, which was, let's see, um, maybe, yeah, but I was trying to think how many years later, it was maybe three, four, no, it was, yeah, four years at least after that, and then that's when I really had to face a lot of my own psychological material and deal with it, but I, in later years, it would very much happen, and this often happens with people in deep practice, that as things open, then our psychological issues come up and we have to deal with them. Or old stuff, and we don't realize that what's actually happening is this old states of consciousness, for example, like depression or something like that might really arise and it's actually not in current time. It's just leaving the whole psychophysical system. We have to stay aware of that and also of course, realize its emptiness and be able to let it go. Let's talk now finally about your, your three-year retreat. In 1982, you write, I entered a traditional Tibetan three-year, three-month retreat that my teacher held on Salt Spring Island in British Columbia. This intensive meditation retreat was the hardest work I'd ever done and was the best thing I've ever done. And I'm curious as to what was the curriculum there? Um, yeah, the curriculum for the three-year, three-month retreat, and it usually lasts a little longer than that. I think ours was three years, four months. It's a succession of meditation practices that build on each other. So it's a very profound uh there's about 40 main practices, and then there's a whole lot of other practices that you do every day. But the main practice you're doing changes at certain intervals, depending sometimes once a month, sometimes after many months and things like that. So, yeah, it goes through a whole succession and starts with Nundro and Guru Yoga and Tonglen and then goes on to, you know, these are all technical terms that people aren't necessarily familiar with, but it, it takes too long to explain all of that. But then into Yidam practice and the six yogas and Mahamudra and our lineage and, and on and on. And so there 
What's interesting is that they build on one another and they prepare you to go on to the next. And it's an incredibly powerful system of transformation. Of I used to think it was metaphorical, that it was completely rewiring me, my brain and my whole being. But now we found out it's actually not metaphorical. It actually is literally happening that we're being rewired. So it's both successes, but what's really interesting is that even the beginning practices are as profound as the ending or the later practices. And it's all interwoven with the same teachings. And so the beginning practices are as profound as the latter practices, and yet um, they're also working with you on a successive, they, you know, in a successive way. So it's a very profound program. And I think, you know, I feel it was the best and most important thing I did with my life because it had the most profound effect of anything I've done. I, you know, ever since that time, I've continued to feel the effects. And it's it's kind of like rolling a ball downhill with an intensive practice like that. You get this spiritual ball rolling to rewire yourself into awaking. And after retreat, as long as you kind of, you know, continue with your practice and have your mind in the right place, that it just continues to manifest and unfold. And I was really, really surprised that even uh, many years after I came out of retreat, that the awake, and I was practicing, but nowhere near at the level of retreat, that I started to have a lot of realization happening later and I never expected that to happen. So it's very powerful in that it puts these powerful forces in motion for transformation, for awakening, and then that process just keeps happening. And why it was really difficult was what I mentioned earlier is that you come face to face with your own self and really seeing you know, like I saw my own shortcomings and my own neurosis and um, confronted with my own pain. You know, a lot of times in regular life, we can distract ourselves. We can go to the beach, we can read a book, we can whatever, talk to friends, go to a movie. You know, we can be a workaholic or exercise. You know, we can exercise all the time. We have methods, some of which are healthy and some of which are not so healthy for distracting ourselves from what is and from really facing ourselves but in that kind of situation we're stuck with ourselves and there's you know I mean you can distract if you want to but that's not the point of being there so then you know we come face to face with ourselves and on a relative level you know seeing the shadow is not and working with that and really is not that fun. Like I really told people afterward, it's kind of like digging out the sewer trenches. That's what it felt like. Being in three-year retreat, you know, at times felt like digging out the sewers, really. Cleaning out the sewers. Can you think of any particular or specific example of some of that shadow material or psychological material that you confronted in that three-year retreat? Well, one example is that I had in front of me the example of Kala Rinpoche, who was 
one of the greatest yogis in the Tibetan tradition of the 20th century. And in our lineage, many great masters, but there was Milarepa also in our lineage. So I inherited two lineages from Kalarimsha, and Milarepa was in one of them. So here are these two great yogis who were so incredibly diligent and devoted, and there was no way my devotion and diligence could live up to their example. So seeing in me my own laziness, my, um, you know, my wanting to kind of take it easy and not apply myself at certain times, uh, you know, the, the, what is that? It's like our resistance, you know, our resistance to practice or our, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, really seeing that just I I don't um, there was just a feeling of tremendous kind of emotional suffering that um, sometimes it like my younger brother died when I was in retreat so that obviously there was a reason why I had emotional suffering at that time but at other times it wasn't like there was really any reason. It was just there in my being and I was experiencing it, you know. And, um, you know, maybe it was karmic or something that I'd been carrying for lifetimes. I don't really know because I hadn't really, you know, I hadn't had great suffering in this life. Uh, you know, of course, I'd had suffering, but... I'd never been abused or mistreated or not anything like that. I had not grown up in a war zone, you know, or anything, you know, really super painful. Uh, so I think a lot of that was was just in my karmic stream of being. But, yeah, I think for me the biggest thing was really seeing my own laziness. And, of course, I worked really hard because – I had a small child or a young child who was 10 years old when I went into retreat and he stayed with my mother. But I, that was the most difficult thing I ever did in my life was to leave my son in order to do retreat. And I felt like I had to really, really make the best use of the time because I had taken this time away from my son. And that was, uh, you know, I, he was, was my biggest responsibility and I felt the pangs of that, you know, very, very strongly. So, you know, I did really try to make, you know, really good use of my time, but I, again, would consistently see my own, you know, laziness. Has your son expressed any, or have you noticed any negative impacts of you having taken those three years away from between the ages, I suppose, of 10 and 13. I think that to some people listening, that might seem quite a big sacrifice in a way. Yeah, I don't really want to talk about it too much, but, uh, and I have talked about it with students and stuff. I, I, it's not something I recommend, and I think that's why I started teaching people the three-year retreat practices and so they could do them in daily life if they have a family and stuff and they can't go to retreat. But I did see an impact. He was surrounded by loving family, both sides of his family. But it was, you know, there's no way it doesn't take a toll, I think, in our culture. Um, 
particularly. So it's complex because when that happens, like say for example in Bhutan or Tibet where that's part of their culture, because it's held in a different way and seen in a different way, it doesn't impact the child in the same way. But in our culture, it seems it's seen as kind of an abandonment, which it wasn't on my side at all. You know, I was very aware of him the whole time. And, you know, and he was in a very loving situation. In fact, when I was first in Darjeeling with Kala Rinpoche and about maybe three months into my stay there, Rinpoche was talking about the benefits of three-year retreat. And I looked at him and I said, well, what if one has a child? And he looked at me and said, well, if the child is really well taken care of and has a really good situation, then it's of more benefit ultimately to do the retreat because it not only benefits yourself, but you can benefit many beings and your whole family as well. And as he said that, I just, tears just started streaming down because I knew at some point that, um, you know, I would, that would probably happen. I just knew I was up against that. I wasn't thinking I'm going to do that or not, but I had wanted to do long-term retreats since I was about 13 years old. And it turned out Kala Rinpoche was the primary um, master of three-year retreats, you know, of the second half of the 20th century, you know, for the Tibetans. He was considered the master of the six yogas. So, you know, and so my longing to do retreat, and then here I was with this Lama who was, you know, renowned for being a retreat master and, and, you know, it just, I just silently was streaming with tears. So I think, yeah, I don't recommend it. It was what had to happen in my life if I had a child very young. So, um, yes, you were 30 when you went into the retreat, weren't you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think we could have a whole podcast just on the three-year retreat, really. But just a couple more questions about it. I'm curious as to what the daily schedule was. If you could give people a sort of sense of, a, if you want a day in the life of a of someone on the three-year retreat. Now, I understand it would have somewhat changed depending on what you covered. And also, I'm curious about the Yidam practice side. Did you do the Kriya Tantra, Yoga Tantra, Highest Yoga Tantra uh, in, in discrete sections? And if so, were you using different yidams for each of those? Were you each assigned individual yidams, or was, uh, or did the whole group with, work with the same deity uh, at the same time, for instance? So um, uh, those are two things, really, a sort of day in the life, and also, to some degree, some of the detail of, of the yidam practice you did. Yeah, the day in the life is um, wake up at basically 4 or 5 in the morning, and, um, I mean, it was... Really, we were supposed to wake up traditionally at four, but I think Kalaram, she gave us a bit of a break and so we could wake up at five. And so we, there were practices we did in our own room at that time. And then uh, both some daily practices as well as whatever main practice we were doing. And then we uh, went to the shrine room and we did Tara practice all together and some other practices all together, a smoke offering ceremony of cedar and juniper, et cetera, and to offer to all beings and many, many different kinds of prayers and mantras and then a 
short break for breakfast, like half hour break for breakfast, and then into our own room. So the main bulk of the retreat we did on our own in our own room. So that would continue then from 8.30 to 11. And then it was, we had um, the physical yogas, the trokor, and then there was a lunch. And then we had a little break at lunch a little longer than just eating lunch. We had a bit of a break. So we were like, all of our texts were in Tibetan. And all, so we were studying Tibetan and studying our praxis and texts and, you know, all of that. And then, and you know, we could relax a little bit during that time. And then again, uh, a session in our own room doing our main practice. So there were four sessions daily of our main practice. And then, so that was about a, a two-hour, two-and-a-half-hour session again. And then we had a tea break, and usually there was another practice that we had to do daily. We usually did that during our tea break. And then we came together again, and we did uh, meditations all together of protector practices and various other practices. We did a lot of practices like to benefit other beings, like beings that were in the bardo or in different realms or in the human realm suffering. So a lot of that going on as well. And so we had about an hour and a half together, a short break for dinner again, and then our evening session in our own room of doing our main practice. And then at nine o'clock, that was over, and then we would do chu in our own room, uh, which takes about 45 minutes to an hour. So it's a pretty full-on intensive schedule of meditation and with a little bit of time for, you know, study. And, uh, yeah, it was pretty intense, actually. Uh, one of the things when asked about it was that Kalarimshe apparently told some of the parents at one point, like, you know, it's like, and he told us this at one point, he gave the example of like taking the tape out of the tape recorder and inserting a new tape, like keeping people so busy doing meditation practices that there's no time to uh, get in any trouble or do anything else. It's just like you're inserting an awakening tape and not giving people much time to do anything except do their spiritual practice. So it's very intense. Very, very intense. And then there were certain times of the month, um, uh, usually four regular times of the month, new moon, full moon, um, the 25th day of the moon and the 29th day of the moon cycle where we would get together and do special meditation ceremonies to get together with Ghana chakras and all of that. So, yeah, it was very intensive. And then... In terms of Yidam practice, yes, we did do the, all the different levels of Yidam practice. And we, in three-year retreat, you all did the same curriculum. If you're in a group retreat, you go through a certain curriculum that is dependent on whatever lineage you're doing. And Kalarimshe wanted us to be able, I actually just about fell over from shock when he told us, this before a retreat, but he said he wanted us to be able to be lineage holders of both the Shampa and the Kagyu. So we actually did a, 
the six yogas of Naguma, of Sukha City, which are the Shampa, and of Naropa, which are the Kagyu, plus we did Yidam practice. We did all the main Yidams of the Shampa and a little bit, um, mainly um, Dorji Palmo, Vajra, Yogini from the Kagyu and a little bit of other ones. So it was uh, a very, very in-depth program. And he himself was holders of both of those lineages. And the Shampa was an inner kind of very quietly practiced lineage. And it came from two women. And I think he really felt that it was time for that lineage to come out more at this time in human history. And so he, you know, had us do the practices from that lineage that did uh, principally come from two enlightened women as well. And there's inner, outer, and secret aspects of the more advanced, you know, Yidam practices. And um, there's very specific reasons why um, you do all these certain practices and certain, you know, in the various lineages. And so in the different lineages, say Nima or Kagyu or Sakya or whatever, there's a similar kind of practices and similar progression, although the specific practice might be different. Like instead of Vajradini, they might be doing Guya Samaja or something, but you know, it's a similar kind of curriculum in general. But the three-year retreat itself, I think was initiated that curriculum, I think, in the 1800s. I mean, the yogis and yoginis had been doing the curriculum, but it wasn't being done in a formalized group setting kind of a way. And that's a more modern thing, you know. And then post-three retreat, often people would do another three retreat. And then in our lineage, go on to do a Kala Chakra retreat. And then after that, go on to longer-term retreat by yourself. But at this time, with what humanity is facing, including Kalaram Shankaramapa, felt that it was better that we try to work in the world and benefit people and do whatever we could to help people in the world today because of the crisis that humanity is facing. They told us that there humanity is going to be facing more and more suffering and it's going to be harder and harder for people. And so, you know, um, it's very important to do whatever we can to try to benefit people and to alleviate suffering. I have two questions. First of all, you mentioned the unfolding impact of the three-year retreat and you mentioned uh, that you had had quite significant realizations later in life, I mean, later on from your three-year retreat, years down the line, uh, that you attribute, at least in part, to the momentum of the three-year retreat, the work you did there. I'm curious specifically what those insights were. Okay, I don't really want to talk about the realization part. So um, let's not talk about that. Um, Yeah. (laughs) So you're talking about both Kala Rinpoche and Karmapa, pointing to difficult times for human beings ahead, more difficult than was the case at the time that they were telling you that. And they were also saying that, for instance, they rather than disappearing 
into seclusion for longer and longer and longer retreats, as would have been the trajectory in your lineage, as, as you described, they, they said, no, instead, go out, help people relieve suffering, you know, be sort of agents for that in these difficult times. So I'm curious if they were specific about what those difficult times would entail and how it is that one can, such as yourself, help people and relieve suffering in that sense. Is it simply a case of propagating the teaching so people can deal with and make sense of or, or find a way through the suffering as it arises? Or is there more to it than that? Well, first of all, they did say some things about what they thought was going to be happening ahead. So at that point in the late 70s and then um, up until the late 80s with Kalarimshi, Karmapa died in the beginning of the 80s, but then Kalarimshi in the end of the 80s, you know, we were aware of climate change, obviously, but we weren't aware on the level that we are now of the impact of what's going to likely be happening with that. But they, there have been predictions from the Tibetan system, from the Kala Chakra teachings and the Shambhala teachings that are inside the Kala Chakra teachings about this time that we're coming into and how there's going to be a lot more war, a lot more famine, a lot more fighting among, you know, even brothers. There's going to be a lot of diseases and all kinds of difficult problems and a lot of genocide and this kind of thing. Now, the Tibetan masters themselves have been doing everything they possibly can to avert this. There's a lot of things that they've been doing to try to minimize this or to, you know, avert the worst of it. And one of those, besides, of course, teaching and all of that is building certain kinds of stupas in certain places and trying to create certain energy um, energies that will counteract those kind of energies. But so at one point, Kala Rinpoche said to me and a few other people that were present, he wanted us to incarnate for the next two to three lifetimes to help people because it was going to get more and more and more incredibly suffering. And so I said to him, I said, well, what are we supposed to do then if we're coming to benefit beings during that time? What are we supposed to do? And he said, the most important thing, because in the end, it'll all boil down to individual karma. If our world becomes too toxic and we can't live on this planet, people will reincarnate in other world systems. There are other world systems and we will live in other world systems on other planets. But he said the most important thing is if people can open their hearts and to help people literally to open their hearts to themselves and others. And that in the final analysis, that's going to be the only thing that really matters is whether people can open their hearts or not. So that was his teaching to us. And that was really why I wrote the book on Tonglen and Love on Every Breath and that profound Tibetan practice for opening the heart to oneself and others. And it's daunting, you know, uh, and I think as a spiritual teacher, like you said, like, can we really help others? I think 
you know, we just do our best. Certainly, as you said, teaching the Dharma, giving people the tools of the Dharma, the practices, being a loving friend, a loving spiritual friend to the best of our capacity, and giving people these tools. I've certainly seen that many people, they've blossomed and come into realization way beyond what I ever expected would happen because of the power of the actual practices and the blessing of these awakened lineages. So that's extremely heartening, and it makes it very satisfying and fulfilling. And at the same time, as being a, being a human being, you know, myself, and I think with most teachers, we're not perfect. Even Karmapa and and other great masters said, well, we tried this in this country, and it didn't really work, or we tried this over here, and that worked, but this didn't work. They were just, it's an experiment. They were trying the best they could. Some of it worked, they felt better than others, other parts of it that they tried. And I think for all of us, it's like that. And sometimes we're just not the right teacher for a certain person. So we can't really benefit them where other people really can get benefits. So I think it's a very humbling experience to be a spiritual teacher, actually. And to, you know, that there is people that really benefit and other people that we're not so able to benefit. And I really feel, I guess, three things most importantly and as a spiritual teacher. One is that I'm a conduit for this awakened lineage, and it's not really about me. I'm a conduit, an imperfect conduit, and yet the, the profundity of the teachings and the practices is so powerful that it has, you know, really it can have amazing effects for people. And then secondly, that, you know, my job is to really open up people's own wisdom, to help them come into their own inner wisdom, to to be able to be in contact with their own inner wisdom. And not that the teacher's job is to tell the students everything what to do, but I feel more like the teacher's job is to help the student access their own wisdom and, of course, their own compassion, loving kindness. And, um, yeah, and just, you know, the third thing I think is that, you know, we're all students and in a process of our own awakening. And, again, it isn't about being a perfect human being or a perfect person. That's not what it's it's about. It's about this whole purification, transformational process is really what awakening is about. And the realizations that come through in that process. And it's a really long process. And then we have to repeat it every lifetime, even if we've reached high levels of realization in one lifetime, when you come back, you have to reactualize that. So it's a you know, it's um, it, it's uh, an act of, you know, for the great masters, it's really an act of unbelievable generosity to come back and reactualize again and again and again. So, Lama Paladin, fortunately, we'll have to bring it to an end here. I'd love to have you uh, on for a part two 
in the future, and then we can dive much more in detail into your book, Love on Every Breath, where you present the Shangpa Kagyu Tonglen practice in, in really a lot of detail. And there's some, also some tremendous stories in there. So I recommend everybody checks that out. Uh, for some pre-reading for the next episode. Um, also, you teach and you do private consultations. You have a new cycle of these three-year retreat curriculum beginning in 2020. Uh, one doesn't go into three-year retreat the way you're teaching. And as you mentioned, it's not structured that way, but it's the same curriculum that begins. And also you offer private spiritual counseling by Skype and Zoom. I'm wondering if you could talk maybe a little bit about what sort of issues or practices or explorations you're open to working with people via that one-to-one Skype mentoring format. Yeah, well, in my one-on-one work, I'm interested in meeting people where they are and for people who sincerely want to do their spiritual work. And as part of that, of course, you know, their psychological work, as we talked about. And in whatever way is appropriate for them, whatever religious tradition that they're in, not necessarily just Buddhist. Some people don't have a specific tradition, and I train them in meditation in general. Given what I feel in talking with them and feeling them and and discussing it with them would be helpful for them and is in attunement with their own soul's process, So I very much believe in that, that, uh, again, that it's the teacher's job to help the student unfold, not, it's not the teacher's job to lay some trip on the students, you know. And so I work in concert with the students and what is really calling them and what they really feel that they're attuned to. And so... uh, you know that I really enjoy that work with some people. I end up giving very um, a lot of direct spiritual teachings either in um, the lineages I'm trained in or just specific meditation instruction in general. And uh, you know, so it depends on the person. But I enjoy that work a lot. That chance to work one on one with people. And people can find me through my website, lamapaldon.org, and there's a way to um, click to schedule a session with me, and then we can discuss together, you know, if work together would be um, advantageous. Lama Paldon, thank you very much. Thank you. Pleasure talking with you. Take care. Thank you for listening to another Guru Viking podcast. For more interviews like these, as well as articles, videos, and guided meditations, visit www.guruviking.com.